Hello and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. We are talking about Christmas today on the podcast, and today's teaching is entitled Dear Bodhi. If you have listened to this podcast before, you know that I have two children. My daughter is turning six, and her name is Maya, and my son just turned three, and his name is Bodhi. Both of my kids were born in December, just a few days before Christmas. For this reason, I cannot think of the Christmas story without thinking of my kids. And so for the past couple of years, I have written both of my kids a letter close to their birthday about what the Christmas season is and how I've seen the Christmas message played out in their life in the previous year. So today's podcast is a letter to my son written on his birthday about what Christmas is and about the man he is becoming. This next week, I am writing a letter to my daughter Maya about the same idea and about the woman that she is becoming. Now, before we read this letter, I want to tell you a couple of things. The first thing is this. This letter is meant to be read by my son on a later date. I don't know when that date will be, but if you are listening to this podcast and thinking to yourself, Seems kind of heavy for a three-year-old. I couldn't agree more. I wrote this letter to be read on a later date. The second thing I need to say before we dive into the letter is that I reference the writings of John. Now, when John writes his gospel, he writes about the Christmas message, but not as explicitly as Matthew and Luke. For this reason, where John writes the words him and he, I've changed the words to this baby. I did this because John wrote his gospel at a time before Christians celebrated Christmas. And I believe that if John wrote his gospel today, he'd write it explicitly about Christmas in this way, by changing him or he to this baby. So when we read from John and I reference this baby, do not be alarmed when it does not show up in your original translation. And now we turn to the letter I wrote to my son. Dear Bodhi, Three years ago this past Thursday, at 3.05 in the morning, your mother gave one last push, and you took your first breath outside of the womb. The nurses placed you on your mother's chest, you calmed down, you opened your eyes, and your tiny body and mind worked together in your first attempt to perceive this strange and beautiful thing called existence. Happy birthday, Bodie. One of the greatest privileges of my life is being your dad for the past three years. I use the word privilege intentionally because I find it endlessly fascinating to watch you grow into the man that God created you to be. In the first year of your life, you learn how to hold your head up, smile, reach for and grab things, sit up, crawl, take your first steps, and laugh. In the second year of life, you begin to run and to form words and to form opinions with those words and to even form jokes with those same words. And during your third year of life, you completed your potty training. Hallelujah. As I wrote this letter, I faced the temptation to simply write a 17-page thank you note to you expressing how grateful I am that I no longer need to change your diaper. But the potty training birthday letter came in second place to something else that happened this year. This year, you became really enjoyable to be around. 
and you really enjoyed being around others. You brought smiles to our faces in so many different ways during this year. You opened Christmas presents with unbridled enthusiasm. You played golf like a semi-pro. You wrapped your first Kanye West bars. You delayed bedtime because you wanted just one more minute with mama. You melted our hearts. You laughed whenever you hid under the table and we quotes couldn't find you. You participated in the timeless tradition of being dressed up by your big sister and you ran through puddles left by the rain. Bodhi, when I think of all of these happy memories and everything in between, the only word that can adequately sum up your third year of life is joy. I'm writing this birthday and Christmas letter to you today to talk to you about the value of joy. Because something happens when we grow older. The joy that you experienced this past year with such ease will begin to feel more distant with each passing year. Adults don't open presents with the same wonder as kids. Adults don't giggle under the table with each other. Adults don't delay bedtime, but rather we love going to bed. And adults don't run through rain puddles. So what happens? What changes between childhood and adulthood that causes us to stop experiencing joy so easily? Between these hoods, there's homework and grades and gossip and taxes and credit card debt and canceled concerts and being disillusioned with your work and rejection and arguments with your family and corporate greed and tears and sickness and even death. The heaviness of all these things burden our hearts. And after we experience the weight of inexplicable suffering, adults begin to distrust the universe. We move from feeling that joy is limitless to keeping our guard up for fear of being hurt by life again. After we suffer, adults ask questions like, is joy just a coping mechanism to deal with the harsh realities of life here on earth? Or we ask, is it even appropriate to feel joy when there is so much suffering in the world? Or we ask, is a joyful life even possible? And if people really know me, then they could even point to my life and quickly declare that a joyful life is not possible. Because I, much like you, was a happy child. But something happened, and since high school, I have struggled with depression. In my life, there have been seasons where I've lost interest in the things that I love, when I feel like my life and my work are a waste of time, and when I feel that I am more of a burden than a blessing. This depression is very real and is one of the most frightening and isolating things I have faced. Recently, someone asked me to share a picture of a time when I looked perfectly normal on the outside but felt anything but normal on the inside. So I shared a picture of your mother and me and your sister at her two-year-old birthday party. I have to tell you, Bodhi, that when I look at this picture now, I get teary. These tears stem from the memories of the heaviness inside of me at that moment. I look at that picture and vividly remember the depression I was carrying with me. But even though I felt torn to pieces inside, your sister had a birthday party. And so I smiled 
and pretended that everything was fine. Is this what joy is? A pretend smile in a world filled with immense suffering? A false facade accessible only to those who live a life of privilege? A naive response that asks you to ignore the pain inside you and in others? Bodhi, no matter what others tell you, these are important questions to ask about joy. To answer them, I'd like to tell you about the Christmas story told from the perspective of Jesus's youngest disciple, John. About 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was born. Some say angels announced his birth. Others say that kings came from faraway countries, while others say that his own king, Herod, attempted to murder him. While we don't know for sure if angels actually announced his birth, what we can say for sure is this. Jesus was born. Jesus cried. Mary breastfed Jesus. Jesus peed. Jesus pooped. And his mother most likely held Jesus closely with bags under her eyes as she told her friends, I just want some sleep. From the story of the birth of Jesus, we know that Jesus grew up, that Jesus lived, and that Jesus died. And then some say Jesus rose from the dead. About 40 years after the death of Jesus, a man named Mark sat down to write a comprehensive story about Jesus. In this story, Mark did not mention the birth of Jesus because he apparently did not find it all that interesting. About 10 to 20 years after Mark's gospel, or 50 to 60 years after the death of Christ, two men named Matthew and Luke sat down in different places with different ideas and different perspectives about Jesus and attempted to write his life story. Unlike Mark, both Matthew and Luke believed the birth of Jesus was essential to understanding the life of Jesus. Independently, they did research and interviews about the birth of Jesus. They did their best to adhere to the highest standards of reporting for their day. And you know what happened, Bodhi? Matthew and Luke's research led them to two different stories about how Jesus came into the world. Now, Matthew tells us that Mary and Joseph lived in Bethlehem, and Mary delivered Jesus in their own home. Shortly after his birth, King Herod ordered that all Jewish boys should be murdered. Fearing for their newborn's life, Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt. Two years later, Herod died, and Mary and Joseph returned to Judea and settled in Nazareth. Luke tells a dissimilar story. He reports to us that Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth and traveled to Bethlehem for a Roman census. While Mary and Joseph registered for the census, Mary gave birth to Jesus in Bethlehem. After the census, the new family of three returned to their home in Nazareth. While some argue that these two accounts of the birth of Jesus undermine the value or accuracy of each story, there was one man who responded in a much different way. About 10 to 30 years after Matthew and Luke's gospel, or 70 to 100 years after the death of Christ, John looked at Matthew, Mark, and Luke's stories about Jesus with all of their disagreements on facts and said, enough with the facts. What this story needs is some poetry. 
So when John writes about the birth of Jesus, he uses metaphors to give the birth of Jesus the proper gravity it deserves. He writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This baby was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through this baby, and without this baby, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in this baby was life, and the life was the light of all people. I find the words that John selected for his metaphors to be engrossing. When John wrote his gospel, he wrote in Greek, and the word behind the translation for life is the ancient Greek word zoe. One thing that's commonly misunderstood about ancient languages is that modern translations are a zero-sum game. In other words, we have an English word for life, therefore, we assume, the ancient Greeks had an ancient word for life. So between ancient Greek and modern English, A equals B. Zoe equals life. But that's not the way things work. In John's day, the Greek language encompassed about 10,000 words in its vocabulary. In our day, Modern English encompasses about 170,000 words in our vocabulary. So a much better way to understand the bridge between ancient Greek and modern English is A equals B times 17. Zoe equals life times 17. With a smaller vocabulary in their arsenal, writers needed their words to cover more ground 2,000 years ago than we need our words to cover today. So when John writes what has come into being in this baby was Zoe, and the Zoe was the light of all people, we hear life, but John meant so much more than life. According to Strong's lexicon, the word Zoe in ancient Greek meant of the absolute fullness of life, both essential and ethical, which belongs to God and through God, both to the hypostatic logos, which is the reason for being, and to Christ in whom the logos, the reason for being, put on human nature. When we read the word life in English, we often think, okay, John means not dead. But when we read the word Zoe, John invites us to imagine what it means to move beyond living on the surface and swim in the depths of what it means to be entirely human. So this baby is born and brings forward Zoe. It's important to remember that John is writing about Jesus after he knows the whole story of Jesus. John is telling us that God took on flesh and showed us a new way to be human, and following in the footsteps of Jesus will lead us into a Zoe kind of life, which John saw Jesus lead. Now it's here, Bodhi, that we must ask a question. What does it mean to live life to the full potential of what a human can be? We assume that the answer is that a human being experiences the full potential of human life when everything is as it should be for that human being. This assumption leads us to believe that the story of Jesus will be about how Jesus always got his way, how everything worked out for Jesus, and that Jesus found a way to eliminate inconveniences, pain, and suffering. After all, John tells us that Jesus possessed the ability to perform miracles. 
So anytime Jesus encountered suffering, he could whisper abracadabra and the suffering would disappear. That's what we assume Zoe is when John writes what has come into being in this baby was Zoe. With that expectation firmly in place, we read about the miracles and methods Jesus employed to overcome suffering. In John 2, Jesus attends a wedding. The host runs out of wine, abracadabra. There's lots of wine, and it's reportedly delicious. In John 4, Jesus encounters a woman who has been marginalized by society, abracadabra. She is empowered to preach. She crushes her preaching, and John writes, Many Samaritans from the city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Also in John 4, a royal official tells Jesus his son is sick, abracadabra, the son is healed. In John 5, Jesus encounters a poor disabled person, abracadabra, the disability is gone. In John 8, Jesus sees a woman who is on trial for adultery. She cannot afford a defense attorney, abracadabra, Jesus successfully defends her and sticks it to the patriarchy in the process. In John 9, a blind beggar asks the disciples for money. Abracadabra, the blindness is gone. These are some remarkable moments in the life of Jesus. When we read these stories, we are filled with hope and longing for a day when Jesus will say abracadabra for us and eliminate our suffering. At this point, people close John's gospel filled with longing. Longing for a day that is different than today. And in their longing, they think to themselves, someday in the future, God will exclaim, abracadabra, and I will finally get to experience Zoe. But Bodhi, this is an a la carte reading of the Gospel of John. Because John followed Jesus around for approximately three years. And in those three years, He saw Jesus, the Son of God, experience suffering. In John 6, Jesus gives a sermon and it bombs. Because of Jesus' sermon, people stop following Jesus after he preaches. In John 5, 7, 10, and 11, Jesus is threatened with death by the officials of his own religion. In John 11, Jesus weeps at a funeral for a loved one. In John 12, one of Jesus' closest friends receives death threats. In John 13, Jesus is about to eat the last supper of his life on earth, and his disciples are more concerned with their dirty feet than they are with serving one another or suffering alongside Jesus. In John 18, Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest friends. Also in John 18, his closest friend abandons Jesus three times. And in John 19, Jesus, the Son of God, dies on a cross. So when John writes, what has come into being in this baby was Zoe, and the Zoe was the light of all people, The Zoe that came into being in Jesus includes friendship 
and betrayal. Sermons that inspire and sermons that bomb. Female empowerment and the sin of sexism. Testimonies and denials. Feasts of gratitude and feasts of pettiness. Companionship and abandonment. Healing and sickness. Laughter and tears. Hope and despair. Life and death. Bodhi, if we really believe John, then Zoe is not found in the elimination of our suffering. Rather, Zoe is revealed in the inclusion of our suffering. I understand that this is counterintuitive, so let me explain. At some point in your life, you will experience the pain of burying a loved one. While you have not experienced this yet, grieving is one of the most agonizing occurrences that you will encounter in life. If you are reading this letter after you have buried a loved one, then I am truly sorry for your loss. Now, none of us want to feel the overwhelming sadness that comes with burying a loved one. But at the same time, I would ask you, what do you want to feel at a funeral? Would you prefer to feel happiness in that moment instead? Imagine attending a funeral and being unable to grieve. Well, that sounds like an inhuman kind of prison, doesn't it? But the most human response to death is a deep sadness for what has been lost. We often think of Zoe as a kind of life where everything works out for us, but life in the fullest sense of the word doesn't work that way. And the reason that we weep and mourn and grieve and lament at funerals is because we love the person we are burying. The reason it's painful at funerals is because this person mattered to us. When Jesus weeps at a funeral in John 11, it's because Jesus loved Lazarus. And when Jesus lived a Zoe kind of life, he opened himself to love over and over again without any fear of the suffering he simultaneously opened himself to. The Zoe of Jesus is not found in the conveniences of life. Rather, the Zoe of Jesus is found in being the most human. The Zoe of Jesus is found in tears at a funeral. This is what John is writing about when he says, what has come into being in this baby was life, and the life was the light of all people. John then writes, the light shines in the darkness. According to John, Zoe requires the darkness and the light existing together. Jesus could have lived a life bathed in the light with the elimination of darkness. Instead, Jesus chose to live with the light and the darkness, and that, Bodhi, is what Zoe is. Not the ability to eliminate the darkness, but the capacity to include the darkness. Not to foolishly seek out the darkness, but to accept the fact that to live a life of love means that we open ourselves to a life of suffering. Once we get a hold of this idea, 
that the depths of life is found in holding the light and the darkness, we come to the last line of John's introduction to his gospel. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Bodhi, this is where Zoe leads us back to our discussion of joy. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. To be able to live in the full presence of light and darkness and to respond with pleasure and gratitude and curiosity and wonder for all of it, that is what we call a joyful life. When Rob Bell teaches on joy, he talks about the difference between happy and joy. Happy is when we have a good day and feel good inside. But joy is what we experience when we appreciate and embrace all of life. Joy includes the darkness, the angst, the doubt, and the death. Now, if I trust the Christmas story, Bodhi, then this means that Zoe and a life of joy cannot be found in the avoidance of my depression, but rather in the acceptance and inclusion of my depression. When I avoid my depression... I have a tendency to tell myself and tell others, I'm fine. But when I accept my depression as part of my life, then I have a tendency to tell myself and others, I need help. When I avoid my depression, I attempt to grin and bear it when I first feel the warning signs because I think I should be better than all of this. But when I accept my depression... I am much quicker to see the warning signs and to change my behavior to avoid dragging others down with me. When I avoid my depression, I often look at myself as weak. But when I accept my depression, I am able to forgive myself when I have a hard time getting out of bed in the morning. This is how I trust the Christmas story, Bodhi. The more I accepted my depression as part of the path that laid before me, the more I was able to make peace with the light and the darkness in my own life. This is what I would call joyful living. Bodhi, I don't know what path lies before you. I don't know what darkness you will face in your lifetime. But what I do know is that as you move from childhood to adulthood, something will happen. And the joy that is so easy for you to feel now will be replaced by an all-too-easy temptation to be cynical. And in that moment, you will ask, is a joyful life even possible? Yes, Bodhi. Your mother and I believe that a joyful life is possible. We have found that it's more than possible to live a life overflowing with joy even if that life involves depression. Your mother and I wanted to bring you into this world, and almost every decision we make as parents is influenced by how we can best help you lead a joyful life. You will live in the light, and you will live in the darkness. And the testimony of the Christmas story is that the darkness will never extinguish the light. All of these words about light and darkness remind me of a story that happened during this year. Our family went camping with some close friends in Joshua Tree National Park back in May. 
As soon as we pulled into the park, your two-year-old eyes saw the iconic rock formations and you exclaimed, Mama, look, big rocks. As we continued to drive, you asked with an imperative tone to get out of the car. You said, I want down. I want down now, Mama. I want big rocks. We arrived at the campsite. We slathered sunscreen all over your exposed skin, and then you sprinted toward the rocks. You played for hours with your sister and your friends in, around, and on the rocks. You picked up and poured sand into indecipherable formations, and you named every lizard you encountered Lizzie. As the sun began to set, we ate haystacks as the rocks changed from a pale yellow to a tertiary orange and then to a glowing red. After cleaning up our meal, we changed you into your jammies and then set you down on the floor of our roofless tent to sleep for the evening. You laid there for maybe a minute, and then you stood bolt upright with a finger pointing beyond the mesh roof of our tent. Mom, you said, I found it. Found what, buddy? Your mom asked. I see the stars, you answered. Your mother and I knew that the stars at Joshua Tree were spectacular. But it all of a sudden dawned on us that until that night, you had never actually seen stars. Over our heads, the skies hummed with a vast symphony of gaseous explosions of light. You then asked, Mom, can we take the stars home? I have known you your whole life, Bodhi, and I have never heard anything quite like the wonder in your voice as you asked that adorable question. Mom, you said again, stars. I was able to take a video recording of you during this time. The video is completely dark, but it captures your voice as you look at the stars. I found it. Yeah, good job. I see a god. You see stars, awesome. Now there are two thoughts I want to share with you about this moment. The first thought is the fact that all of those stars that you saw that night exist at our home in Redlands. But we can't see them here at home, can we? The reason for the disappearance of the stars is not because the stars shine brighter or more directly into Joshua Tree National Park. The stars are invisible at home because Redlands is filled with millions of electric light bulbs. Our city, like every American city, is employing all of these lights in a desperate attempt to turn the night into day. We want to eliminate darkness by transforming it into light. And because of this desire to eliminate darkness, we can no longer see stars. In other words, darkness is required for us to understand what light is. The second thought about this story is tied to the duration of this story. Because on that night when you pointed to the stars and begged for us to take them home, you stood in the wonder of the stars for 20 minutes. Yes, 20 minutes. 20 minutes might as well be eternity for a two-year-old. My son, before that night at Joshua Tree, do you know how long it's been since I've looked at the stars for 20 minutes straight? I think it's been 15 years. The last time I can remember soaking in the wonder of a vast canopy of stars was on top of a houseboat in Lake Powell in my early 20s. 
every night for the past 15 years. Those stars shone brightly, and I have not made the time to escape Redland's light pollution to appreciate them. In fact, the only reason we saw the stars this year is because your mother and I felt it would be good for your sister and for you to get outside and experience the wonder of God's creation. But the fact is, I was the one who needed to get outside. I was the one who needed to marvel at the work of God. Something happens to us when we get older. We become numb to the beauty that is all around us. We become cynical rather than joyful. We become less interested in adventure. We become indifferent to light that has traversed the universe for thousands of years to land on our retinas. This moment required you, my live-in two-year-old spiritual guru, to break me out of my patterns of inflated self-importance and busyness and say, but dad, have you seen the stars? Have you seen how the darkness exists to make light truly count? Dad, have you seen how the lights shine in the darkness, but the darkness, no matter how hard it tries, cannot overcome it? Bodhi, you call me back to the wonder of childhood, and it's a trip that adults and myself need to make more frequently. May this story be a reminder to you to regularly return to the wonder of your childhood. To my dear Bodhi, my son, my guru, my friend, my pride, and yes, my joy. A joyful life is possible. It is a beautiful thing for us to exist. May you throw yourself fully into this life. May you trust the testimonies of those who have gone before you, who boldly told us, look, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness does not overcome it. And may you live a joyful life. Happy birthday, Bodhi, and Merry Christmas. I am proud of the man that you are becoming, and I love you, Dad. <laughs>